to episode 61 of Fish Across the Ponds, the Marlins UK podcast. I'm your host, Peter Pratt, and delighted to welcome Glenn Geffner back to the show. Glenn, how are we? I'm great. It's great to do this again. Third time for me. I'm very excited. Hopefully you get it right this time. <laughs> Third appearance now. It's the most appearances from any guest. So awesome to have you back. Uh, Gotta get that Guinness certified. It's a world record. It is. You, you're gonna have next to a blue tick. Maybe there'll be like a I don't know a red tick or something next to it to say it's yeah. Exciting. All right. You know, fish across the pond most times of anyone. So awesome to have you back. Last time we spoke, uh, we had just played three games in spring training. Uh, One point. Wow. So, woo. It was like ten years ago, doesn't it? <laughs> it in many seems, respects, it seems a long, long time ago for sure. Um, but there's going to be a lot for us to get into. I think, though, before we kind of get into baseball and on-field Marlins, uh, it feels right for us to spend some time talking about the, the Seven Geff uh, live project that, that you and Paul Severino uh, got off the ground in. You know, what was one of the few rays of light, I think, that came from this whole COVID situation. So I, I think myself and, and the listeners will be intrigued to understand you know, how it came about, um, firstly, and, there's, and secondly as well, <laughs> and, and the guys will speak to this, uh, that the, the got involved with this podcast, um, whether there were any major technical glitches in the early <laughs> part, because <laughs> our episode one was almost unlistenable, but um, you know, how, how did things come together? And yeah, technical issues, were there any? You know, uh, March 12th was the day the world came to a grinding halt in baseball and well beyond baseball. And I was sitting at home watching TV with my family, maybe about March 17th-ish, 10 o'clock at night. And I got a text from Paul. He said, hey, what do you think about trying to put kind of a show together just to keep people talking about baseball? Uh, and as I said on our very first episode, this was Paul's idea. So if it works out, he gets the credit. If it's a total bust, he gets all the blame. Uh, but it really worked out. And we had a lot of fun with it. Paul's a great guy. And, uh, you know, we, I think we collaborated well on it. Uh, we, we both brought different strengths, different perspectives to it. Uh, and the big thing was at a time when there was no baseball and there was so little else going on in the world in general, it gave a chance to listen to some people talking about baseball. And we had some great guests who brought tremendous insight. And it's really struck me over the last couple of weeks watching the Marlins play how much of what we heard, how much of what we learned has really played out over the course of this season. When you have a guest like John Birdie on and he tells his story, makes him such an easy guy to root for and to see him have the success that he's having for a lot of fun to hear Mel Stottlemyre Jr. talking about this pitching staff and then seeing what the staff has gone out and done and talking to Don Mattingly and the other guests that we've had. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think we both benefited from it as broadcasters. Hopefully the viewers and listeners benefited from it. Uh, it's still out there in podcast form. If anybody missed any episodes and wants to go check it out, they're still timely in many respects. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And as for technical glitches, I think we learned early on that you can only bite off so much technically. So we tried to do that one special episode on opening day where we had requested videos from people talking about their stories, how they became Marlins fans. And you submitted one. We had a bunch of people submit great videos. And uh, we kind of overwhelmed the system we were using that day. So that episode went kaput. But outside of that, I think technically for two guys who had no clue what they were doing, it worked out okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, firstly, I need to testify or, or, or give you feedback that it was an awesome show and it really was wonderful. The insight. And, and for me, 
as you know a UK fan that the thing that I need to put out there is we we don't get pre-game post-game interviews typically you know in a normal season we we don't see that so you get very little insight to the players and the coaches and uh, etc you know off and away from the field so those episodes with like Mel as you mentioned James Rowson I thought they were absolutely incredible episodes and, and insights and it was it was really great to hear and let me add one thing to what you're saying to your point Peter even when we're around the team in a regular season on a daily basis you don't get the chance to sit down with people for 45 minutes or an hour and go into some of the big picture things we were able to talk about. So much of it is routine day-to-day stuff. Hey, what's the latest on this guy's injury? And how are you going to match up against Max Scherzer tonight? And what are you looking for from Pablo Lopez tonight? So much of it is the day-to-day routine stuff that you have to get through so mm-hmm. you can never have these deeper dive-type conversations. That's what, to me, made it so special. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. And this, this may be a tough tough follow-up for you but favorite guest if if you could name one wow that that's a tough one yeah uh, i know our our most listened to episode was the mel sotomayor jr episode mm-hmm. and we said this at the end of almost every episode we went about an hour on average we could have gone for six hours with mel we could have gone for six hours with a lot of our guests but i thought the energy that Mel brought to that conversation, the insight, the information, peeling back the curtain, some of the behind the scenes stuff was really special, really unique. Uh, him talking about his relationship with his father, who was a legendary major league pitcher and a long time, very successful big league pitching coach. And again, those are the kind of things we've been around Mel for two years. We've never asked Mel those questions before. Mm-hmm. We finally had a forum where we could, and he was terrific. James Rouse was great. Don Manley was great. John, you know, go down the line. Everybody we had was great. Uh, the different broadcasters we had on were great. Some of the national perspectives we had were great. So uh, for me, there wasn't a bad episode, and uh, it was a lot of fun, no doubt. Agree. So let's just finish off on this one. Will it be back? Will it ever be back? It's a good question. You never know. Uh, I, I'd never say never. Uh, we'll see. There's definitely a place for it, I think. And Paul and I are great friends and enjoyed working together. So I wouldn't bet against it, but uh, too soon to tell right now. We got a ball game tomorrow night, one day at a time. <laughs> you turn into Don Mattingly, uh, you know, exactly. Every day. <laughs> Love it. Um, okay, cool. So the COVID kicks in. Um, everything is hit. You know, the pause button is hit. We don't know what's going on. There's, there's, I guess, all sorts of contractual issues going on with the players and the league and whatever at that point did you did you even think we'd get a season going I did uh all along I just felt like there was too much to lose for everybody if you didn't find a way to play some kind of a season and from the beginning I said whatever it is it's not going to be perfect there aren't going to be enough games there's not going to be enough money uh there probably won't be fans in the ballparks as we've seen it won't be perfect for the players not for the owners, not for the broadcasters, not for the fans. We'll be perfect for anybody. But I just thought there was too much at stake for everyone to not find a way to get it done. Uh, now, the question was always, could you get it done safely from a medical standpoint? Mm-hmm. And obviously, there have been some bumps in the road along the way. But here we are now with about uh, three and a half weeks to go. And we got a pretty good shot of completing this season. And uh, at the beginning, when they started it, even though I thought there would be a season – I thought getting through 60 games and a full postseason was going to be a real challenge and they would need a lot of uh, help, maybe a miracle somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. And it looks right now like we've got a shot to get it done. And that's a tribute to everybody who's been involved with this process. 
yeah, it's it's definitely trending that way. And I think the one the one major thing that's impressed me is that the league and and everyone they've not been scared to to flex it now. Like they they're comfortable being fluid with the situation and just making changes like mid, you know mid season um, to to make sure it just a the players are protected and 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 b we don't have a major outbreak or whatever. We minimise the risk as best we can for you know another kind of outbreak that obviously the Marlins saw directly. But that's been the one thing for me is they, they've been comfortable flexing it and, and, and you know, we've changed the protocols throughout, mm-hmm. which was, was the right thing. You know, we need to try and get it, get it to the postseason yeah. and, and let the fun and games begin. So um, before we dive into that actual situation, I, I just wanted to ask from your perspective and, you know, your day-to-day role of, you know, the, the, the radio play-by-play action, how different has it been this year for you? It's been very different. Uh, most notably, when the team is at home, we broadcast the games as we normally would from our booth looking down on the field and we call the game. No fans in the ballpark, the fake noise being piped in. Uh, but those days are relatively normal from the broadcast standpoint. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when the team is on the road, no broadcasters with any team, TV or radio, are traveling with their teams this year. So we're calling those games remotely. We go into Marlins Park every day to a different booth down the hall from our regular booth where we've got uh, a bank of monitors set up and we're watching the game on TV with a couple of extra angles we can look at and some things in our laptops we can look at. But that's a very different experience trying to broadcast a game remotely like that. But the bigger thing that you know fans don't see on a daily basis is we're removed from the team. We mm-hmm. do not have any face-to-face interaction with the players, the coaches, the managers, the front office executives. Uh, so while we participate in the zoom calls that other media members do, you know, we're not at the batting cage every day. Like we normally are. We're not in the clubhouse every day. We're not on the charter. We're not in the hotel. We're not running into guys on the road in restaurants or walking down fifth Avenue, in New York city. So you lose a lot of that. And what I've always prided myself in is bringing things to the broadcast that nobody else has, because we live in an era where fans have so much access to information, statistical mm-hmm. information, things that are written, But they don't have access to players every day like I do. And I try to make the most of that access uh, and ask questions I want to get answered, that fans want to hear about it, and to come up with unique angles and things like that. So what I've had to do this year is beyond the Zoom calls that everybody participates in, I still want things that nobody else has. So whether it's been on phone calls or private Zoom calls or direct messages on social media, things like that, I've tried to stay in contact beyond the routine day-to-day media Zoom calls with the manager, with several members of the coaching staff, with a bunch of players, with front office people, with uh, people around the game, with other teams, with managers, with scouts, with front office executives. So I still want to bring things to the broadcast that nobody else is bringing on a nightly basis. But without that private one-on-one time, it's been a lot harder to do that this year. But we found a way to make it work, though. Yeah. And and has there been um, anything, like, new or different that you've actually, like, you've had to do? this year that you think kind of going forward, oh, actually, you know, that's neat. and Maybe we'll carry that on. Um, I, I don't know if there is or not, but. It's an interesting question. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there is. I think our, everybody's hope is that come opening day 2021, things are back to the way they were in 2019. Uh, and we are in the clubhouse every day and we are down on the field every day and we are able to interact with these guys on a daily basis. My day-to-day preparation, the work I do at home before I go to the ballpark, is essentially the same as it's always been. The mechanics of broadcasting the game, 
certainly when the team is at home, are the same as they've always been. Uh, working off the monitor has been a different experience. Mm. Uh, you know, in some respects, I've been spoiled being able to come home at night to my family when the team is on the road, which I haven't done in, I've been in baseball almost 30 years. I've been traveling with teams for almost 30 years. So to call a game when the team is in New York and an hour after the game ends to be back home, uh, you know, that's been a, a bit of a treat this year. I guess one of the positives come out of it. But uh, I don't really see anything that uh, we've been through this year that I would say, you know what, even in a more normal circumstance, I like to carry that over. I like to get back yeah. to normal as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Here, here on that one, I guess. But mm -hmm. um, I've asked most guests that have joined me on this podcast these, these kind of two questions. So we'll, we'll get into these and then we'll kind of get into some Marlins action. But of the new rules, the 2020 rules, what's been your favorite one? And what, equally on the flip side, has been your least favorite new rule? I talked to a lot of people in minor league baseball when we learned about the new extra inning rule. And I went into it very skeptical. I, I didn't like it. I don't like changing the way the game is played on the field. I understand why they changed the rule. Mm -hmm. I'm not crazy about 18 inning games. But the people I talked to the minors said, give it a chance. You're actually going to like it. And I've given it a chance, and I actually like it. Uh, I, I like the fact that sometimes if you're home watching a game on TV, maybe a game you don't care about passionately, when the game goes to extra innings, oh, they might be here all night, you turn it off or you go to a different game. Now you've got instant action, and you, you're on the edge of your seat at the start of the top of the 10th inning because there's that man at second base, and you know something is likely about to happen. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't happen, it's probably going to be for an exciting reason. Uh, and then you've got the bottom of the inning. And there's some strategy involved. Do you bunt? Do you not bunt? How do you play things out? I've seen some teams now start intentionally walking the first batter to set up a double play and a force at third base. So instead of a man at second, nobody out. You have first and second, nobody out. Uh, so surprisingly, although I was told I was going to like it, I think I've come to like that rule. Uh, the one I don't like is the three batter minimum rule. And again, I don't like things that change the way the game is played, the way the game is managed. I think if you have a lefty who gets lefty hitters out, you shouldn't be penalized. You should be rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. And to me, there are other ways to speed up the pace of play than simply forcing a team to keep a pitcher in longer than they've wanted to keep him in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I've asked that quite, like I've said, I've asked it to, to all the guests we've had on the last couple of weeks and it's been wide ranging the opinions on, on those two that you've called out. Some have liked them, some haven't. I would say, the runner on second has been the one that has split split people more than really than, than most. I think, yeah. There's the, particularly a lot of the UK fans that I I talk with. Um, they they're really against it. Seemingly, I I like it. I like the drama. <clears throat> I think that's what you get into, right? It's kind of creating excitement every inning. You know, every inning. It, you know, but the feedback is was manufactured excitement. But you know, for me. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I've been well, here was, this was my original idea, and I say this a little tongue-in-cheek, but somewhat seriously. My proposal had been you play a 10th inning of regular baseball. If the game's not decided after 10, or maybe I could be talked into 11 innings, then you go home run derby to decide the game. If you're going, uh, let's do something crazy, let's get fans excited. Okay, the Marlins and Mets are tied 5-5 after 11. They're going to home run derby. The MLB network will cut in for that. You pick whatever three hitters you want who are in the game or available on the bench at the end of the game, and those three guys each get five swings. And uh, you get 15 swings each team. If it's still tied, then it's a fourth guy. If it's still tied, then it's a fifth guy. I think it would be fun to watch, like a shootout in soccer or you know, penalty okay. shots. 
I, I think that could be entertaining. It also adds an element of strategy because if you've got that slugging right fielder who's a bad defender and you take him out up a run in the ninth inning for defense, well, now he's not available for the home run derby. So yeah. that's my kind of outside the box idea, but I can live with what they're doing now with this uh, runner at second base. I like I, I like that suggestion. I must say, yeah, Let's do and, it. You no, know, because uh, you know, in, in in football or soccer, in in, mm-hmm. in in your world, I guess, um, you know, this the whole notion of a penalty shootout is has always been there, and uh, follow that game very closely, also. And so, I, I like that kind of style of ending where you just you know you just have a, a shootout, and whoever wins wins from there. It's a lot of a lot of excitement, a lot of fun. So. Yeah, I like it. I'm, I'm intrigued to see which of these rules kind of make it through 2020, I guess. But, you know, time will tell. Um, so, the Marlins on field, we're now 16 and 16. Um, so, 500 ball, good for third place in the NL East. Uh, wow. I mean, only 32 games have been played. And so much has happened with the Marlins. It's absolutely incredible to think of all that's gone on the past few months. But Glenn, how, how could you possibly describe this season so far? <laughs> well, it's been crazy. No question about that. Uh, and there was that period where we wondered if we'd play another game even after just three games in Philadelphia to begin the season. Then the team was shut down for those eight days. Uh, if you look at what the external predictions were for this team going into this season, a lot of people would be stunned that this team is where it is right now at 500 and only what now, I guess four games out of first place, waking up today in third place and as many as four games back for the first time all year. Uh, to me, what the story is though, isn't that the Marlins are 16 and 16, but it's how they've gotten there with all the turnover, with all the changes, uh, with having to replace 18 players at one time uh, and then having to replace some of those replacements who've gotten hurt or who have gone elsewhere for various reasons. Uh, so what they were able to do to keep this thing afloat and to give this team a chance down the stretch, for me, is a bigger story than the fact that this team is very much alive and with a chance to make the playoffs down the stretch. Uh, it really has been unprecedented in the history of baseball. Certainly this whole season's unprecedented in the history of baseball. But to do what they did as an organization, to bring these guys in, to keep this thing going in the right direction, the way the players have responded, the way Donnie and his staff have set the tone, if Don Mattingly's not the National League Manager of the Year this year, I don't know why they have the award. Yeah. Uh, what he's done has been remarkable. But this team has overcome so much just to be where it is. And really now, when you look at adding Sixto to the rotation, you look at adding Trevor Rogers to the rotation, Alcantara's back, Urania's knocking on the door, could be back in less than a week. You say, even though this team has overperformed expectations at this point, it ought to be better, you'd think, down the stretch, adding Starling Marte now than it's been so far this year. So I think there are a lot of reasons for optimism in 2020. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and just on a on a, a side note, you've mentioned the you know the 18 guys went went onto the COVID IL. Isan uh, then also opted out. He's now opted back in, but um, at the time he'd opted out. So in effect, 19 guys um, were, were off the the, the roster. Um, from your perspective, <laughs> trying to, to, to commentate on the games, be honest now, were there moments when there were pitchers coming out the bullpen and you didn't actually know who they were? Because I certainly I didn't. I didn't know. Oh, no doubt. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I do my homework, so I, I could tell you James Hoyt's story when James Hoyt made his Marlins debut, but uh, he wasn't the guy I was expecting to see pitching in the, you know, fifth game of the season for the Marlins this year. And there were a lot of guys like that 
without question. Hey, Donnie himself has said he was calling guys in from the bullpen and meeting them for the first time when they arrived on the pitcher's mound. So, uh, and with people wearing masks, you know, it's hard to know who's who these days. Hard to tell the players out of scorecard. But uh, one way or another, they've pieced together, and particularly with the pitching and with the number of young starters they've had to bring up, guys who weren't particularly stretched out, where they've had to use six, seven, as many as nine different pitchers in the game, and they've won some games like that. What Donnie has done, what Mel Stoudemire has done, truly is remarkable. Uh, absolutely. And, and just, just to kind of go on, on that thread there, who, well, not who, just Mike Hill, the job he's had to do. I mean, he, Donnie as a manager, I mean, he's, he's done an incredible job. But for me, Mike Hill, to keep, to keep it, you know, the patchwork stuff going, to keep this team competitive, for me, has been sensational. I, I don't think there's a better word to describe it, in my opinion. Yeah, the entire baseball operations department, Michael Hill, you've got Gary Denbo, you've got Brian Chatton, the assistant general manager, and there's so many names going down the line with the analytics people. Uh, to adjust on the fly the way they did is insane. And, uh, you know, a lot of baseball people say in a typical season, you spend the first two months trying to figure out what you have. Then you spend the two months leading up to the deadline trying to improve what you have. Then those final two months are, well, let's see what we have. Let's go and let's try to win this thing. Uh, these guys had three games to start the year with what they knew they had. And then not just losing, as you mentioned, 19 players, 18 plus Eastside, but losing your top three starting pitchers going into the season, losing eight of your opening day, 12 bullpen members, losing your starting catcher, losing your baseman, your starting shortstop, your opening day right fielder, your opening day DH. You go on down the line. Uh, you know, it's not like they lost the, the – 25th, 26th, 27th, and 28th guys on the roster, they were losing key players off of a team that everybody thought was going to be one of the three or four worst in baseball going into the season. Everybody externally, those were the projections. And to see what they've done, to see what some of these players have done with the opportunities they've gotten has really, really been fun. Yeah. Has there been, I don't know if you could name one, but has there been a favorite win thus far that you could point to? Tell you what, when the Marlins won that Sunday game in Philadelphia that first weekend, coming back after the four-run first, having lost the players that morning, and you began to see things unraveling, what they did that day was huge. And I said on the post-game show that when the Marlins get to where they want to be, when they win that championship, this is one of those games you're going to look back on and you're going to remember. Mm-hmm. But there have actually been a couple since then. Uh, you know, even some of the more recent games. That went against the Mets just this past Monday, the makeup game. Uh, when, quite honestly, nobody wanted to be there. And when the Marlins uh, agreed with the Mets that we should not play that game that Thursday night in New York, that we should stand up and and protest, uh, the expectation was that the game would be made up in New York the day after the season ended if it was necessary for the playoff races because the Marlins are going to be in New York to end the year against the Yankees anyway, and it just made sense. But when you have only two days off, in the entire season remaining beginning with that day. And then uh, September 3rd, then you play 28 games, 24 days, the rest of the way. Nobody thought that game was going to be made up on that one rare day off to have to fly back to New York for less than 24 hours in the middle of a homestand. Uh, it really stunk. And then to know you got to face DeGrom and then to fall behind DeGrom, but to come back and win that game, that was a character win. And that's another one that I think people are going to remember for a long time. Uh- you, you've named the two that stand out for me, definitely. Like that, that Phillies one, uh, we were doing uh, the, the, the UK community 
which I love. Like live stream, yeah. So in play, I love that. And it was so I was covering that game, and I tell it was sensational to cover. It was a lot of fun, and and just the whole backstory to come back and win that game. It's the best ever Marlins game that I've seen live personally. So, mm-hmm. but the Mets one, the Mets one just this week, the the flurry of activity that was happening in the space of fifteen minutes, where you right. had, you know you had the Marlins doing stuff on the field, rallying, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Cooper Loop destroying another one, which was awesome. Then all this trade action going on. At the same time, I was trying to cook dinner for, for me <laughs> and my wife. And anyway, we end up we end up with some burnt burgers, but you know, it was worth it. I saw you on Twitter. I saw your tweet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she wasn't best pleased with that, but what a win that was on the back end. I mean, ah, oh, that that whole situation was just terrible. I, you know, I they made the right call on the Thursday, like, and the protest was was powerful and poignant, I thought. I thought it was very well delivered, but for, for then the Marlins to get what they got out of that, you know, being forced to go for a one-game series in between two home series was was wrong. You know, really it was wrong, I think. So, you know, for them to get that win, I think was huge. I'm, and I equally like the fact that they um, took VR and Mejia back on the on the flight with them too. So mm-hmm. it would have been interested to see what kind of went on on that flight. But it's nice that they they did that. I believe that's true anyway. that's Yeah, that's that is true. Yep. It, so. You know, it's good, yep. good on them. Mm-hmm. You know, two great wins. Just on, just going back to when, you know, the Marlins outbreak kind of happened. What's your take on the the national media coverage that was going on at the time? Um, you know, Bob Nightingale in particular was was I think a little bit loose, let's say. But what's your take on that one? I think uh, historically the Marlins have been an easy punching bag for people in the media, and there's no question over the years with some of the things this organization did under previous owners, maybe that was deserved. I understand the history of fire sales and breaking teams up and the attendance issues, uh, and particularly in days in the football stadium, playing in an empty stadium a lot. Uh, There there are a lot of cliches out there about the Marlins that uh, are just too easy for people to continue that narrative. And there, there are things that will happen with the Marlins that get treated differently nationally than if they happen with another team. And I think we saw that happen over the course of those eight days when there were all the questions swirling around. Uh, and, and obviously it was off that it would happen to any team, but particularly obviously in our case that it happened to the Marlins. Uh, and to see people immediately jump to thinking the worst had happened and to accusing the worst had happened. And a couple of rumors get out there and all of a sudden that's the storyline. Mm-hmm. And even after it came out that the Marlins independent investigation and the MLB independent investigation showed that some of the things that were reported to have happened didn't happen. I would go on a radio show in the state of Florida and point that out and have the host say, I didn't know that. I, I assumed that what I had heard happened, happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people want to believe the worst, whether it's in this or, or in so many other things in the world we live in these days. So I agree with you. Some of the treatment was unfair. And you've seen other teams, I think, treated very differently when very similar things have happened to them since. Uh, look, I think we've all learned a lot. And, and the Marlins, unfortunately, were the guinea pig. And we talked about how MLB has adjusted the way they've handled certain situations. Uh, there were mistakes made when the Marlins outbreak began. Some of those things were better when the Cardinals outbreak began, some not. Uh, and with every team that's had episodes since, I think the handling of it all has gotten better. There's more understanding of what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. 
But I agree with your premise that uh, there was a lot of unfair attention on the Marlins at the time. And uh, hopefully we, we've overcome that now. And hopefully the Marlins can have the last laugh with what they do on the field. Yeah, hopefully so. Uh, and just on, I guess, the, the, the COVID situation led to us seeing loads, loads of the, the young guys. I mean, we obviously had to, to pick up, you know, free agents and make some trades and all sorts to, particularly for bullpen. But one of the positives I take away from it is we've actually had some, some eyeballs on, on, on some of these younger guys that perhaps wouldn't have been up at, up, up at the big leagues this year. So, you know, what I'm thinking is, you know, Trevor Rogers, for example, I'm not convinced he would have, he would have been up this year right. um, if, if, if it was a normal year, let's say, um, barring injuries, obviously, um, et cetera. So um, what's been, you know, Sixto aside, because Sixto's been electric, we'll get to him in a sec. But of the other guys we've seen, there's been loads of them. What's been the kind of takeaway you've had from those and who's kind of stood out for you, you know, early doors? Well, Trevor Rogers is a guy, you mentioned his name. He has stood out. Uh, this is a pitcher who we knew they had very high hopes for, but hadn't really seen a whole lot of in spring training. And uh, he's made a heck of an impression. And I know in talking with Mel Stoudemire Jr. a couple of days ago, uh, when he debuted against the Mets, Mel, who'd been in Seattle, talked to Robinson Cano, who he'd been with in Seattle. Cano's a guy who knows a thing or two about hitting and pitching in the big leagues, and, and Cano was blown away by what he saw from Trevor Rogers. Uh, so, so he certainly is one. Uh, you know, it's, it's sped up the process for a lot of guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some cases, they've stepped right in and played very well. In other cases, you've seen some guys who maybe aren't ready to be here quite yet, but hopefully you learn something from dealing with that adversity. Uh, you know, obviously the start for Monte Harrison was not what anybody had hoped for. Uh, but now hopefully he's got a better understanding of how the game is played up here and the competition level and what kind of pitching he's going to face. And he can go back to Jupiter, and make the adjustments they've got him working on. Uh, so not everybody has been a grand slam success, but Dan Castano is a guy who you didn't hear talked about among the top prospects. You heard all these other pitchers mentioned before Castano, but he's come up here. He held his own when he got the chance to make some starts for the Marlins. Uh, I'd like to see more of Nick Neidert down the stretch this year. He's a pitcher who was with us initially and then tested positive. Uh, I'd like to see him get a chance as a starter. We saw him in long relief that first weekend in Philadelphia. Uh, and we can get to six stone, get to some of the others. Uh, I, there's been a lot to like from Lewin Diaz from what mm. we've seen so far. The numbers aren't great, uh, but the approach, the swing, the defense, the way he carries himself, I really like. Uh, I'll say the same thing about Jesus Sanchez. The numbers have been terrible, but you watch the approach. You, you can watch a guy go one for 21 and say, this guy's overmatched. He's not ready to – he's got to make all kinds of adjustments. You can also watch a guy go for one for 21 and say, you know what, he's putting up good at bats, he's battling, he's competitive, and they're going to start falling in for him. And he hasn't gotten down and he's grinding. And to me, that's what we've seen from Jesus Sanchez, who's now back adult in the training site, but uh, another guy who plays the game with a smile on his face, a really good defensive outfielder, who I think is going to be a really good player despite the slow start. Yeah, <clears throat> me too. A great summary. Lewin Diaz in particular, I'm glad you called him out. The glove, the, the defense is, is mm -hmm. exceptional. It is so smooth and slick. He just looks incredible at first base. Absolutely love him there. Um, and, and the at-bats are, are looking good. It, it's an important point you make there, really, where when you look at the stats and, you know, the hits and whatever, and you go, mm, okay, struggling, but 
when you put your eyeballs on these guys, you come away feeling different sometimes. I think that's what you, the point you're making, right? You can, mm-hmm. you can see that Lewin, Jesus, you know, they, they look like big leaguers or, or very near to yep. you know, that level. And so, you know, it's just about experience for them. They're young guys and, you know, it takes, it takes time. And, you know, there's some good pitches around too, right? I mean, it's not. Yes, there are. We just finished easy. a stretch. We're in 13 days. The Marlins saw six Cy Young Award winners in yeah. a 13-day span. There so uh, have fun with that, no matter how much experience you have. But when you're in your first couple of weeks in the big leagues, that's tough. And just last night, we saw Jazz Chisholm make his first big league start, a lefty hitter against a really good lefty pitcher. Hyun Jin Ryu finished second in Cy Young voting in the National League last year. That's not a game that Jazz would have started normally, but Miguel Rojas is out with the injury. And so Jazz had to make his first big league start. And – you know, that, it's not a good matchup for him. That's the reality. Now you come back, hopefully, and uh, have a good weekend against Tampa Bay. Yeah. Well, talking about starting pitchers and pitchers that have potential Cy Young award ability, um, Sixto Sanchez, oh, my days. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of him ever before, but I've been totally blown away by him. Like, it's, it's so different, Glenn. You know, when I'm watching Sixto, it's like no other pitcher. It just mm-hmm. looks different to me. He just looks, he just looks incredible. <laughs> what's been your take? You've probably been a little bit closer to the action, but you know, what's been your no, take on Sixto? I agree with you. This is a next level type talent. Uh, I'm going to say something to you on this podcast right now that I have not said publicly. I've not said it on the radio but I can't help but watch Sixto and immediately reflect back to Jose Fernandez when he came up to the big leagues and what Jose meant to this team and the way Jose dominated. Uh, for a pitcher this young to be this electric, to be this poised, to have this much confidence, to have the great command and control that he has, this is a very, very unique talent. And again, I'm going to go back to a private conversation I had with Mel Stoudemire Jr. a few days ago where he said, uh, you know, he's been a pitching coach for a long time with a lot of teams. He was in Arizona when Max Scherzer first got to the big leagues. And he said, he's been on a lot of great pitchers, including Scherzer, who when they first got up, you could tell they were going to be really good. But Scherzer was throwing too many pitches. He wasn't putting hitters away. A lot of foul balls with two strikes, keeping at bats alive. He could have stood to improve his command a little bit. There's some mechanical things that he could have improved. And he's done all those things. And now he's going to the Hall of Fame. There's no question about that. But he said he's never seen a pitcher come up as ready to be here as Sixto Sanchez is. And we've seen three starts now, you know, 19 innings, 19 strikeouts, one walk. Yeah, He's been electric. He's confident. You know, Pedro Martinez was his hero. And Pedro made this point about Sixto and the confidence. Pedro said, when I took the mound – I knew I was better than the guy at the plate. And that gave me the confidence to attack, to throw strikes. It's me versus you, and I'm going to win. He said he sees that in this 22-year-old. He's that confident. That's why he can be as aggressive as he is and not nibble and not allow a home run to get knocked off the plate and walk the next couple of guys because all of a sudden you start to doubt yourself. This guy is special, a very unique talent. And and here's one more thing I'll leave you with. There are those in this organization and with others who would say, wait for Edward Cabrera to get here because there are some who think Edward Cabrera has a chance to be every bit as good. And some would say even better than six though. Wow. I mean, it'd be fun. I mean, 
if that is the case, and it's interesting because there were, I've heard those rumors too, knocking around, you know, mainly kind of spring training time, um, 1.0, I must say. So, but around those times, it was, there was talk of Eddie Cabrera um, potentially being slightly ahead of where Sixto was at, which he I was mean, in the spring. He definitely was in the spring. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Sixto worked very hard over those four months where we were all away. And Cabrera came back to summer camp, a little bit of a shoulder issue. And that's why he's behind right now. And we may see him down the stretch this year, maybe out of the bullpen, but yeah. uh, look forward to seeing him in the spring next year for sure. I got, uh, and I think it was yesterday on the Zoom call, Yimmy Garcia was on. I think that was yesterday. And yes, it was. I, I, I seem to recall Yimmy talking about Eddie Cabrera yep. specifically and calling him out, just saying, you know, wait till you see this guy. So, yep. you know. And then you've got Max Meyer, who the Marlins just took in the first round this year, the draft. Uh, and he's coming with that wipeout slider and the 100-mile-per-hour plus fastball. And, and you go on down the line, these pitching prospects. Uh, it's, and now you've already got Sixto here. You've already got Trevor Rogers here. Uh, and all of a sudden, you think about Braxton Garrett or Jordan Holloway or Nick Neidert. And uh, just keep going on down the line. They're not all going to hit. They're not all going to be superstars. But if three or four of those guys hit, you've got something insanely special. No, absolutely. Even now, I look at, and I'm kind of slightly jumping, jumping ahead now. And we'll, well, I'll maybe come back in a sec, but let's say the Marlins make the, the postseason this year. And in all likelihood, um, it'll be, you know, the, the wild card three game series. I'm not quite sure whether it's going to be a bubble. I'm, I'm, you know, there's obviously rumors knocking around if they may change it, but let's say it isn't. They go forward with what was planned three-game series, the Marlins probably on the road somewhere um, if they get in, uh, the way the seedings will work. The Marlins and their rotation, if everyone's still healthy and they line up, you've got, you know, in some sort of order, let's say Sandy, Pablo, and Sixto. Right. No matter who they get, they're going to have a chance. They're going to have I a listed, chance to go through. I listed all those pitchers a minute ago. I didn't mention Sandy Alcantara or Pablo <laughs> Lopez, who have been around for a couple of years now. Uh, so this has the makings of a very special rotation. It's already, you know, top seven or eight in baseball in terms of ERA through everything they've been through this year. And that's with Urania not having thrown a single pitch. That's with Alcantara not having made two starts and neither one or the last one wasn't very good. The first one was great in Philadelphia opening day. Uh, and Caleb Smith made one bad start before he got traded. Uh, so your top three guys have made a grand total of three starts this season. And still the rotation is number one in the National League East. Uh, I think as of yesterday, number four in the National League and number eight in all of Major League Baseball. And those numbers wow. would have improved with what Sixto did last night. So uh, they've got to make it something very, very special. Mm. What What did you, uh, just on a slightly different topic, what did you make of the, the trade deadline activity that, that, that went down on the, on the final day? Well, historically, Michael Hill has not liked trading pitching away. So the fact that he was comfortable enough to trade Caleb Smith and Umberto Mejia tells you about the depth of pitching in this organization. It's the same thing you go back to last year when he traded uh, to bring Jazz Chisholm in here, gave up on Zach Gallon. Didn't give up on Zach Gallon, but gave up Zach Gallon, uh, who we knew had begun to establish himself as a pretty good big league pitcher. He's pitched very well for the D-backs. But Michael said, that's an area of tremendous depth for us. We can afford to give value up to bring value back. And that's what they did here. Uh, Marte, fills a need here. The outfield has been not very productive to this point this season. Uh, Marlins have struggled against lefty pitching. So this is a very established right-handed hitter 
five-tool guy, does everything well, great outfielder, he's won a couple gold gloves, hits for average, hits for power, steals bases, a high-energy guy, a really good clubhouse guy. So I like that trade, trading from an area of tremendous depth to bring in something you really needed. Uh, and the thought of the player to be named in that trade with the Blue Jays, where VR really was kind of an extra piece for this team, and probably not a guy who would have been back after this season. Now if you bring a power-hitting outfield prospect in, in Griffin Conine, who has reportedly been the player to be named, uh, and the son of Mr. Marlon, Jeff Conine, that's a, a nice pickup as well. Yeah, I, the name just you know, straight away, it's going to draw some eyeballs and, and everyone will follow that story. You know, not sure how it'll end, but um, it's, it's going to be a fun one to watch. What, what did you make of, uh, just on, on Jonathan VR, um, he, he obviously, you know, the way things played out, traded to the Blue Jays and straight back to Marlins Park for, for two games. What did you make of his uh, two-game um, a, a series for the Blue Jays the last couple of nights? Well, you know, we saw a lot of that with VR when he was here. There were times he could be a little overly aggressive on the bases. There were times he made decisions uh, bunting with the bases loaded and two outs or, or trying to bunt with two strikes in certain situations where you weren't entirely sure what he was thinking at a given moment. There were a couple of times he got lazy on throws and he, he threw some balls away at second base when he was here. So I think what we saw, particularly last night, that final game against the Blue Jays, was what we had seen, but it was all kind of thrown together in one game, a lot of it. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of tools. He's got a lot of talent. But, uh, you know, you look at certain guys, and when you see them put numbers up, you see them be generally productive players, but you see that they seem to be on a different team every year. It makes you wonder a little bit. And why is it that the teams they put these numbers up for let them go? And, you know, we, we saw that side of VR a little bit while he was here. Certainly it was magnified last night. But with Isan Diaz coming back, with Jazz Chisholm here now, with Eddie Alvarez in the mix, Marlins have other options at second base. And, uh, you know, I, I think they're fine to move on there. Yeah. The, uh, we're going to get to, um, I guess, some predictions or how we think the thing, you know, things are going to play out. But before we do, I need to ask you, Stalin Marte, um, first, first game as a Marlin, destroys a two-run homer to, to win it uh, two days ago. I've heard your call. I've, I've been, it's been knocking around on Twitter, so I've heard the Marlins radio call from, from yourself, which was excellent. One thing I need to ask you about, we can't see it because the cameras aren't on. Geff, is there any sort of hand motion waves going on you know, behind, <laughs> behind <laughs> the camera, in the booths? Not is in the radio the booth. No, down on the field, yes, not in the radio booth, though. There might be a fist pump definitely a fist pump every now and then in a big spot but I, I don't do the wave at least not yet good well we'll, we'll we'll keep our eyes peeled on that one um but you know what an impact from from Marte I mean there you go you you, you get him in and uh, deliver straight away game one and in, in a big spot I mean you can't really ask for too much more um he's under control now I think for another year if I'm, yep. if I'm correct so you know you've now oh, got and, and we had Michael Hill on the air a couple of nights ago and he made it clear he made it clear the day of the trade also that uh, he's owed $12.5 million next year, but you don't give up what the Marlins gave up to get him thinking he's only going to play for you for a month. So there's every expectation. Marlins pick up that option. They commit the $12.5 million to him next year. Yeah. Yeah, well, talented guy. I'm intrigued to see, see how that one plays out. So conscious we're, we're running tight on time. So um, 28 games remain. We're now in a 28-game sprint. We're still at 500. We're still in the playoff P 
picture as if, if, it, if it ended now, we'd, we'd be, you know, one of the bottom seeds, but we'd be in. Um, in your opinion, Gaff, do the Marlins make it this year to the postseason? I think a 500 record gets you in this year with eight teams qualifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this next week is going to tell a lot of the story. Six games in a row against first place teams on the road. Three against the Rays, who just swept Miami in a three-game series in Marlins Park last weekend. Then three in Atlanta. And we know how tough the Braves have been on the Marlins, especially in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I think they need to stay afloat over this next week. If they survive these next six games, I think they're going to find their way into the postseason. If yeah. they go one and five, I think it becomes really tough. So if they can go three and three, boy, if they go four and two, they're in really good shape. If they go three and three and just come out of this uh, pretty much where they are, you could live with that. But this next week's, I think, going to tell the story. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a great point. Great point you've made there. Because the, the schedule after these kind of – it's a little bit of a soft bit, let's say, where you've got the, well, the Nats and, and the you know the Nats. A lot of games against the Phillies and Nats coming up. Seven yeah. games in five days against the Phillies. Then I think five against the Nationals mm-hmm. uh, with double headers mixed in there against both teams. Multiple double headers. The Phillies are playing a lot better right now. The Phillies have hit their stride. And uh, they're certainly a team to keep an eye on. Uh, for me, they're after slow start, they're peaking. The Nats seem to be sinking like a rock right now. Yeah. The Mets are scuffling, but the Marlins are done with the Mets. So uh, this next week's going to be big. Yeah, I mean, oh, these the Rays will probably come with three straight lefties. You know, that's that's the kryptonite this year for the Marlins. These these left-handed soft toss pitchers, seemingly like mm-hmm. we just can't get the offense going. It's it's kind of strange, really, the way that we just can't make a click at it's all. One, yeah, it's one of those things that's so hard to explain. And you've heard Donnie asked about it a lot. He's been asked about the team's struggles at home a lot. And you just can't explain certain things. There was a soft-tossing lefty, Jamie Moyer, who was before your time, but uh, he stuck around well into his 40s. I think he was 46, 47 by the time he retired. But as a Philly, late in his career, he gave the Marlins absolute fits, and they would face him five or six times a year. They just couldn't beat Jamie Moore. That was a very different lineup back then, talking 2008, 2009, 2010. But it's similar to what we're seeing this year with the guys like Ryan Yarbrough, who we just Mm -hmm. faced last week for Tampa Bay, who just, for whatever reason, is really able to keep this Marlins lineup off balance and have a lot of success against them. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, the way things play out in baseball, like we'll have a breakout. You know, we can, well, we'll I, I hope we do anyway. We need one, particularly. Mm-hmm. We need to give, nick at least one of the games off, off the Rays in the next, uh, over the weekend. Um, so, two final bits um, from me. Um, the Marlins, just in, in terms of Marlins Park, I can't get a sense of this. So, I just need to ask you this like, from a broadcast, I can't get a sense. How loud is the pumped in noise? And does it kind of fluctuate up and down depending on kind of what's happening in the game? To me, you know, watching it, it, it sounds quiet, but I just was intrigued to get your take on it. To me, it sounds pretty normal, just in the routine moments. There's that little hum in the crowd when nothing's going on. Uh, when something big happens and it gets louder, it's not as loud as it would normally be with fans in there. Marlins Park gets very loud, particularly with the roof closed and holding the sound in. When there are fans in there, even without 37,000 in there, with, with 17,000, it can get very loud. It can be a, a really good environment. Uh, so you don't get that volume level. You don't get that energy level. But I think the, the routine stuff 
feels pretty normal. Okay, that's interesting. It, it just because you when you listen to other broadcasts and whatever, it, it's it sounds louder um, mm. than the Marlins Park, but you know you're there, you you can hear it. So um, that's interesting. Final one before I let you go. Uh, we're talking about the postseason. Sixteen teams will make the postseason this year of thirty. Like or dislike that one? You know what? For one year, I like it. Uh, long term, I don't like it. This is a weird year. I understand why they did it, and I'm totally fine with it. And if it helps the Marlins out, great. It helps the Marlins out. Uh, big picture, though, I like the fact that more than in any other sport, you really need to earn your way into October in baseball. You need to earn your way into the postseason. The best teams get there every year. And it may not always be the best team that wins the World Series, but, uh, you know, it's not some team that finished eight games under winning the World Series either. Uh, you got to play really good baseball in October to win it, no matter what your regular season record was. So I can handle it for this year. And if it means Marlon's getting in, I'm all for it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm loving the ride. So I've got no problem with it. I've, I've never been more engaged in a, in a baseball season than this one, albeit this is only my fourth season I've ever followed. So coming at it from a, <laughs> with less historical coverage, let's say. It's so, only going to get better. 2021 is going to be better. 2022 is going to be better. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. This, uh, this, this, this Marlins team is, is really trending. So I'm excited for it. Geff, awesome to have you along again. Third appearance for you in the books. Make sure you come back for a fourth. Mm, come on. Well, let's get, let's get you on, you know, after the regular season and then, you know, hopefully just before the postseason, you know, kicks off for the Marlins would be for me what I'm targeting. So, it's on my calendar already, Peter. You got it. Happy good to do man. it. I hope you enjoyed it. It's always great talking to you, Gaff. Um, a lot of fun. Good man. That's episode 61 in the books, and we will be back very, very soon. Thanks to Glenn Geffner, and thanks to you, the listeners. Speak soon.